we should be champions of this technology within the organization because we have been interacting with this for quite some time. We should provide that level of confidence to the larger user community and to our organizations in saying, look, I'm an InfoSec professional. I have been using this technology. Yes, there are threats, but don't be scared. The solution to this is not that you block LLMs or ChatGPT or BARD or those things. The solution to this is this is how you should do it in a safe and secure manner. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I'm speaking with Mani Masood, Head of Information Security and Applied AI at a leading healthcare MSP. A professor, a radio ad, and the father of Watson all shape his impressive decades-long career in cybersecurity. Now he's joining us to share his insights on balancing education with experience and most of all, embracing AI as a security leader. The past and future of information security is shaped by innovations in technology. So should InfoSec professionals become champions of AI within their organizations? Is your degree obsolete after two years? And how can CISOs and other executives adapt to these tech advancements? Mani, thank you so much for being on the show today. If you would, please introduce yourself. Hi, this is Mani Masood. I'm the head of information security and applied AI at a leading healthcare MSP service provider. And I've been in this line of work for quite some time, almost well above two decades. Started in IT, transitioned into information security, and dabbled into AI starting 2017 and kind of taking that on as, as, as a role as well. That's an interesting pairing, something I want to jump into a little later for sure. Before we go there, though, I want to get a little bit closer to the Genesis story. When we met earlier, you had what I thought was a very entertaining couple stories actually kind of wound into one, but you were getting your MIS degree at Houston, University of Houston, and you had a conversation with someone in leadership there that I think the quote was, you're wasting your time go get a job. Hopefully I paraphrased correctly. Can you take us from that point? What was happening then? Yeah, and those those were interesting times and in, in University of Houston had a pretty good management of information systems program. And I was in a course that was being taught by our dean for the program at that point in time, Dr. Hersheim and and great professor. And I was just like a good student cramming last minute before the exam, right? There was another class that was taking place right before our session. And, and this is, you know, at the time when everyone actually showed up for the class, there's no online classes and things like that. So one class is, is in and the other one is just waiting outside, cramming, and out comes the professor and he looks at me and, and he sees that I'm, I'm visibly nervous, right? I'm worried that how I would do on this exam. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, cramming. It's like, you need to go out and get a job and just stop worrying about this stuff. And I went and I took the exam and I, I did all right. I don't remember what I scored on it. But after the exam was over, I walked back to the professor's office and kept on having a conversation with him. And I said, you know, do, do you really mean that? Because, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
the stuff that you're learning here is is one thing, but the things that are happening in in the actual industry are another. So I think you should go and and get your hands, you know, in in real industry. And I said, well, who would hire me? Just let me refer you to someone. And within a couple of days, I got referred to one of his colleagues, uh, who was senior executive at a technology consulting firm, which was an outfit owned by a large oil and gas company. And I went there for a series of interviews. I had the first interview, the second, the third. I believe it was like five or six interviews that I went through. Didn't get the job, but it was an, an amazing experience. And it, it gave me the confidence, which I did not have before going through that interview process, I was, you know, not sure that I'm ready for prime time. And going through that interview process, even though I didn't get it, really gave me that confidence. I want to spend a second on that. Had you had a tech interview before, at this, you know, before these five or six interviews, had you done any technical interviewing prior to that? No, no, this was this was my first, you know, real job, real corporate job interview. Was it all in one day? No, it was spread over 3 days. So so it was it was almost like a competition, right? I was when when I went for the interview, I thought, "Hey, I'm not going to make it to round 2." And then I made it to round 2 and that boosted confidence and for the second interview when I went there for the second round, there were multiple on on within one day, but it was spread over 2 or 3 days and so when I went the second time, I was a lot more comfortable, less nervous, and finally reached a point where it was the final round of interviews. And they, the companies, are, are HR departments are really good. They give you some feedback, right, that you're one of the few or you're one of the three or one of the last two candidates. And so they were, they were giving me feedback, in which really gave me the confidence that, hey, this is, this is for real. I can do this. I wanted to make a bigger point of this because just if nothing else is a reminder to all of us when people interview with us uh, that's a lasting impression uh, and is not only practice for you but certainly practice for them and and there's so many paths we could go down uh, i just remember before i even started off in information security when i was in it i was an analyst and an engineer and did dev support and had an interview with microsoft and it was very much the same i did not get the job uh, I was number two. I spent all day in Houston, funny enough, and did not get the job. And they let me know, you're number two. You have like a number over your head kind of throughout the day. And I, I was doing really well. And then I bombed with one guy. And I think that knocked me back. But interesting experience. So now you, you did well, but you didn't get it. Uh, so now what's going on? Are you still in school or, or what's, what's happening? We'll get to the, the, I know there's an advertisement on 104 KRB, but what happens between, what we just finished in the help desk job. So I, I mean, I, I definitely went back to school. I mean, I was, it, you know, this was right towards the end of, of the semester. So I'd, I had already enrolled in the next set of classes. I mean, I was pretty focused on, hey, I need to, to finish schooling. And that's the traditional approach, right? I mean, you, or it used to be the traditional approach. You finish your degree and then you go, you start as, as an analyst or an, an associate or an intern in uh in a big corporation and then you work your way up so i i you know was pretty focused on on that objective but what I, what had happened was that it has given me a window that there is something else as well this is not the the only route right there there are things that are happening 
people really don't care whether you have finished your degree. What they care about is whether you can do the work or not. And we've all gone through lots and lots of interviews on both sides. I've conducted interviews. I've been in interviews. I think the the most amazing ones or the most memorable ones are the ones where there's a conversation and exploration of the candidate and the organization's abilities. The interviews where it's very technical and it's very test-like are normally the ones which are, you tend to forget about them and the candidate tends to, to forget about them as well, right? I second that. It's funny, you know, you go through interviews and some of them, I love the ones that are more, as you mentioned, more like a conversation and less like you're being evaluated on some sort of test sheet from the star situation kind of formula, you know, where you, you're just someone's arbitrarily picking something rather than sort of letting you tell uh, sort of the best story of yourself or or share something interesting. I think also as you move up the chain, you get more of that. But some of these, you know, feeling like you're a serial number sometimes gets a little bit cold, maybe, I think, especially when you know that you're in a sea of 100 other people, you know, maybe. So you finished that semester. Did you finish that MIS degree? I'm one of those students who who used to be shy about saying this earlier, but I think now I'm I'm in that age and, and position where I can say this very comfortably, that I'm one of those students who did not finish a four-year degree in four years. It took me six years to finish it. And in hindsight, I don't have any regrets because just to continue the same story, before the following semester started, a friend of mine and, and I, we were in, in the car driving uh, around. We heard an ad on 104KRBE about a call center company setting up operations in Houston, and they're looking for a lot of folks. And this was a big thing, right? So we're talking 96, 97, 98. And that's where call center, help desk, you know, gateway, Toshiba, and all of these things were a pretty big thing. And the friend of mine, he did the research. So, so he, he noted the number down. I didn't think much about it. He did some research and then had a conversation with me and said, he wants to do this job. Uh, it's ideal for him because it's in the night and he can attend classes during during the day. And he devised a plan where the idea was that I would go in a few candidates before him just to get an idea about, you know, what are the questions they're asking? What are some of those technical things that they would they would want us to know about? And I'll come out and, and tell him that this is what they're asking. And if need be, we'll figure out what the correct answers are. And again, we have no idea. Are they quizzing? Are they testing? Is it more of a conversation? Are they trying to figure out that do these people have the ability to troubleshoot? Or are they asking precise technical solutions for precise technical problems? So we went there. It was on Louisiana Street in, in downtown Houston. There were like five or six folks between myself and my friend. And I went in before him. It was a pretty simple uh, you know, Windows 95 type of troubleshooting interview. Um, I would say it was mostly a formality because the company needed to hire a thousand people. And they were pretty happy if they could find people who had worked on computers before. So I came out and told them, this is the kind of questions they're asking. We both got the job. And that really slowed my degree down because since then, I've always stayed employed in some shape or form, right? Either consulting, contracting, 
or a full-time position, but that did slow my degree down. And, and I always felt that there was something where I'm missing the mark. I'm not, you know, like, like a chip on your shoulder. You didn't finish a four-year degree in, in four years. I would counter that. We all go down a different path. To me, I mean, if that job, if you enjoyed it and you were learning and making money, maybe most importantly uh, at the time, if you're a student with, as we all were, or most of us were, there's a value there. And I would argue that when you then finish the degree, even if it's six years, that it's not just a degree. You have hands-on experience in customer service, customer support, troubleshooting, technology, an introduction to the corporate environment, right? You've had a, a review or two that have happened, right? So there's all these things that I think it may have been a, maybe not a secret weapon, but it may carry more value than than maybe you even recognize today, maybe. And I'm, I'm new to it. You've had a long time to think about it, but I know that I would enjoy seeing it, I think, on a resume as a hiring manager if there was a, a young person that had a similar situation. I think, you know, that that's, we all don't go down the same assembly line. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and plus when you have the experience of, of years, you know, you, you become comfortable as well. I'm back then changing job from this tech support job to the, to the next one and then continuing the degree. I always had this in my mind that, Hey, this is something that I should have done in four years. Everyone does it in four years. Why aren't you doing it in four years, right? But in hindsight, I mean, if you, if you think about it, right, and I tell this to, to my kids and I tell this to anyone who wants to talk about education and IT and InfoSec and, and all of these things, that no matter how well you do in a IT degree, in a computer science degree, it's going to be obsolete within two, three years. Whatever they have taught you is in terms of software, in terms of application, now, principles and standards and those things last much longer. But, you know, when you were doing your degree, if you were working on an X version of a database, by the time you graduate, that thing is obsolete. No one's using that. Now it's another version or maybe completely different brand of, of database that's being, being used. So within IT, it really doesn't matter, especially in this day and age. Even now, the U.S. government doesn't require you to have for your bachelor's degree to apply for positions. So, but hey, that was, that was one thing that I carried as a chip on my shoulder, and I kind of share this with the community and, and with friends and family and kids that are coming out of high school, that your education should be providing you some value. You should not worry about what others would think. If you are taking a slower path and you're going to do this in five years and six years, but you're following a plan, hey, more power to you. Don't worry about trying to do it within three years or within four years. So I learned. I think also I had a similar route where I was hired without a degree while I was still working on my undergrad. And I had to petition the university to change my educational plan and, and do a bunch of other stuff, taking night classes. And then I, I had to take computer science classes from Purdue instead of additional classes, um, or what's known as also a CPT from Purdue, uh, instead of more traditional classes out of Indiana University, because I was at a branch campus then, all these other details. But I can tell you, somehow the, the finishing up my degree became 
more interesting because I was working at the same time, as strange as that is. And you and I were in this at the same time. Like we're about the same age or, you know, working on the same kind of timeline. And, you know, even the idea back then, it was a little bit vain, but I had a laptop that was supplied to me by my employer, which was a huge deal. And then to be able to use that on my schoolwork as well, like that was, that was a, <laughs> to me, pretty special, but it gave me much more energy to complete my schooling and to approach it with, I think, a different lens. I was more serious about it, number one. And number two, I had a point of perspective and a point of reference that I lacked before, which I appreciated. It made, it made writing essays easier, you know, things like that. So I thought that was a good point of reference. It was good for me at the time. I agree with you. And one of the things that I found myself doing the degree while working, that I found myself getting into discussions on both sides, right? So at work, when, you know, people are trying to, trying to do things and they're trying to ad hoc it. I would get engaged into conversation in terms of, hey, is this the right way of, of doing it? Because, you know, your education is providing you that that structure, those standards, those academic principles to apply. And when you're, you know, developing an application or when you are creating a database and those kind of things. And going back to the classroom, I would engage in heated debates at times with with professors because. I think they were teaching a lot of theory, and the, that theory did not translate into real work scenarios, right? So, so it, it definitely added value for me. That's a really interesting not to be. I think teaching, honestly, I think teaching is one of the things that a lot of semi-retired security people should go do. So the George Bernard Shaw quote that I will in a moment reference is not meant to offend anyone. But you bring up a very interesting point is you were doing it daily and maybe that lecturer hadn't done it maybe ever at all or not in 20 years or 15 or 10. So, you know, as, as George Bernard says, those who can do, those who cannot teach. <laughs> and it's a bit it's a bit mean, but it's in this example, it applies well, in my opinion, maybe not in your I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that's an example of it that we all need to remember staying relevant. So. You move on. You told me you did that for about two and a half years, and then it got kind of boring. We've got a book to talk about. We've got AI to talk about. But what did you learn through this process kind of from this point until you move into more senior roles? What are you, what are you working on? What's something you might want to share, again, back to the, the newer listener? So the one thing which was pretty interesting for me that you know, we're talking about a time when technology and innovation within technologies is exploding, right? You've you've got that dot com era coming in, and and you know people are spinning up something dot com, and then they're going on the stock market, and their stocks are going up, and all of those success stories. And we had never seen anything like that, not only in the U.S. but anywhere in the world prior to that era, right? So I'm talking like ninety nine. 2000 or even 98 to 2001. And essentially in that period, all of the conventional wisdom, the Harvard wisdom, had just been thrown out the window, right? The idea was, hey, we'll figure out how we make money later. Right now, we just need to get this thing up and running. So that was a very interesting 
experience for me, right? Because I, I had teachers, I had books, I had parents who were coming from a different era, and they were telling you that this is not going to work. This is going to fail. This is, this is not how life functions. And then in reality, what you're seeing is that it is functioning that way. I mean, there is, there is iteration. It, things do fall out. Not everything succeeds. But there are serial entrepreneurs and they're CEO one day and then they're delivering pizza the other day and then they go back and they start something else up, which gets bought out. And then they're working as an employee for the organization that acquired their startup. So all kinds of stories that are happening in real life in front of you. And that give you, at least give me the, the perspective that this is truly a time where what you can do matters more than whether you're doing it following a rule or you're following um, the status quo. I think that's an interesting point. I remember that time clearly, the excitement in the market and the opportunities for new hires. And I can remember distinctly, this would have been in 99, a kid who graduated the, so I, you were MIS, I was what we called CIS, which for the younger listener, those that nomenclature has been retired. I don't think anybody uses MIS or before then it was AIS, accounting information systems, mine was computer information or management. All that's kind of out the window now, but really it's a hybrid, at least it was for mine, of between business, so accounting and finance and stats and calculus and all this and a merger with that and with programming languages and maybe systems administration classes and these sorts of things for the for the newer listener that that may instead be in a a similar sounding but a different degree but this one person in particular that went I don't know why this sticks in my mind but he graduated and I think this was in 99 and moved to California moved to San Francisco bay area couldn't afford a house so lived on a boat but had like an $80,000 offer, which at the time was pretty big as an undergrad. I think it was 80 or 85, but then lived on a boat for one of these startups. And it was an online hardware store that collapsed that didn't do anything. But there was so much excitement around, it almost didn't matter. Like these rules, things were happening so quickly that it almost didn't matter that nothing made sense. Absolutely. And, and again, there's a philosophical conversation in this as well, right? What is the right way versus is is that a efficient use of resources within an economy? But if you think about it at an individual level, at a student level or, or a fresh grad level, you want to be in that environment. That's that's where you want to be, right? I mean, you you really don't care whether this thing. I mean, you care. You would want it to to be successful because you're putting your your hard work in it. But I think that's that's the Gen X nature. That let's let's just do this. Let's make it happen. We'll worry about the problems as they come along. Well, and I think so. That time back then, and I, well, two things. The first is I always try to coach people into as long as they have the energy to do things where they can go learn and jokingly in dog years, right? So. You don't want your when you're when you're hungry and trying to learn, you want to speed up those contact hours. You want to start making decisions quickly. You don't want to stagnate. Funny enough, in information security, one of the ways I recommend doing that is is go do breach response for a while. Go do incident response for a while. You will work 
and have to make decisions at an accelerated. Now, you may burn out, but it's a great way uh, to learn. Another way to learn in dog years is support applications that are really junky, right? So they, I was a new person at one point in my career, and they gave me the worst applications to support because they were always broken. But because they were always down, I had to troubleshoot them that much more. I was looking in log files. I was finding errors. I was looking for where are we out of memory? Where are we filling up log space? Where are we throwing DCOM or COM plus errors? What isn't registered correctly, right? What DLLs are failing? All these old school ideas, but you're, you're having a troubleshoot. You're utilizing, you're looking at what's open or closed. You know, you're running Netstat. You're doing, at the time it was Ethereal and then later Wireshark to try to troubleshoot. But all that sort of dog ears kind of thing. And this example you're describing is just that. And I think maybe this is a little bit of a transition. You've been working in AI for a while. And I think this might be another one of those moments in terms of opportunities to learn in dog ears. Do you feel the same way? I do. So my foray into AI just started primarily because of a few relationships and a personal interest in in the subject. And back in 2017, Steve Mills from IBM was retiring and I had an opportunity to spend a day with him. And for me, that was a whole, that just one day was a whole brand new master's degree in, in a subject that I had not been exposed to at that level, right? I mean, I've, I've read papers, I've read books and things like that on the subject, but to spend a full one day with Father of Watson at a time when this is no longer, you know, it's not a sexy topic, no one really cares about it. And I was completely blown away. And from that, there was an opportunity to spend some time in the IBM Innovation Lab in Zurich for a couple of weeks on and see some of the AI things that they were working on. And I saw the precursor to the chat GPT or the LLMs that, that we have today. And that's, that's where I got interested into the topic. But some of the listeners may or may not know this, that in terms of technology, InfoSec is a domain that has had an early experience with AI and machine learning. The security tools and, and detection tools have been using some form of, of AI, I think, as far back as 2015 or 16, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. It could be even earlier. This is true. I would agree to that statement. So we've, as industry or industry professionals, I mean, we've, we've been seeing the power of machine learning and automation through machine learning and, and AI could have, I mean, everyone wants to have an army of InfoSec professionals. And unfortunately, the budgets and, and other resource restrictions don't allow that. So we've been trying to solve for the InfoSec problem using AI for quite some time. And I think in, in terms of organizations that are trying to experiment with this technology, and this technology has, has leapfrogged, I mean, where it is today is just unbelievable. But, but I personally think that Looking into your InfoSec team may be a good idea. One, because they understand the technology, they have been experimenting with it for a longer period of time. And two, because of that view on safety, data protection, security, access control, you know, they would be able to preempt certain challenges that this technology will bring as it, as it matures. I really love this topic. It's something that I spend a lot of time on myself, both in my free time and during my workday. 
for those that are interested in sort of sorting through all of that's out there, I, I've I kind of place it into three buckets that we as security leaders should be thinking about. I want to share those, and then if you would pick those apart, or maybe augment, or agree, or disagree, if you would, because we have the opportunity with you here on the show. I kind of see it three levels or three three sections. One is. I think a security team needs to be aware of how the adversary is utilizing automation, AI in general, in, in terms of to benefit their activities. Their goals are still unchanged, but what's added is a velocity and a speed for them to have success at a scale not seen before. And so really thinking critically on how the adversary is using it, whether that's at a very basic level, enriching the ability to write a good phishing email or letter or spoofing an executive, you kind of have, you have, that's one camp. That's one thing we need to make sure we're smart on and, and have a, a feel for that we have some way to sort of understand that. The next, I think, is very different, but one is how does the landscape of what we have to defend and respond to change? And so all business leaders are eagerly interested in, in adopting elements of machine learning, AI, to change the way that operations works, right? So there'll be a day soon where call centers may be a thing of the past, as an example. So what does that mean from a risk perspective, and how do we have to change our security program to adapt and to support that as a very specific example? The third, which to me is maybe most exciting, is how do these platforms assist the defender? How does it assist the CISO? How does it change the way we onboard new security analysts in the SOC? How does it help us make decisions on what we should do next? How does it enrich and enable the things we need to get done? And so those are the kind of the treetop level view of those three sections. How do you feel about those three? And, and maybe I could, could I get your perspective on, on each of those buckets? I agree with you. I, so, so what you have described is the core of InfoSec day-to-day life, right? Now we have a new technology that has stepped in, and we need to adjust, pivot, learn, and defend our resources, our people, our, our business, our reputations, and at the same time also see can we exploit this technology to our benefit. But what I'm saying is that we go a step further as information security professionals, especially in organizations that have a little bit of a reluctance in adopting this technology. The fact that we have been using this longer than any other business unit within an organization positions us uniquely in seeing a problem and applying AI to it and solving it. Now, I'm not saying that we become, we, we forget InfoSec and we become app dev or DevOps professionals. What I'm saying is that we should be champions of this technology within the organization because we have been interacting with this for quite some time. We should provide that level of confidence to the larger user community and to our organizations in saying, look, I'm an InfoSec professional. I have been using this technology. Yes, there are threats. But don't be scared. The solution to this is not that you block LLMs or ChatGPT or BARD or those things. The solution to this is this is how you should do it in a safe and secure manner. So that's the additional thing that I'm talking about. So 
how would you go about that? And I think there's organizations, I've seen both camps. I've seen those that are in the spot where, funny enough, security has been reluctant. They're the ones that were reluctant, which I think is wrong and dangerous. But for those that have been utilizing certainly machine learning for a while to solve complex problems and where I have seen it the most is sort of in the sock. But what's the approach then that that security leader should take, that CISO to kind of be a coach? Because it's a little bit different to say, hey, uh, let me evaluate this technology stack and tell you what the risks are. Instead, the messages that you're talking about is, hey, we're familiar with this. Here's sort of our lessons learned and our guidance. That's a different type of conversation. So what's your recommendation on how to introduce that how to be that security leader if you haven't been in the past. This is a unique situation. How do you make use of it cleanly? Well, step one is is to be genuine, right? I mean, you can't recommend something if you're not comfortable with it, if you've not used it, and you have not overcome your, your own fears. If you are that CISO who has actually used this, then it may become easier. But if you're if you are a security professional or a CISO who has not used this technology, Maybe going back to the drawing board a little bit, and like you were talking about learning in dog years, maybe a good thing. In InfoSec, we have to learn every day, right? The only people who are smarter than us are the adversaries and the bad guys, right? Those, those are the ones who, who are ahead of the curve, unfortunately. So I have not seen an information security professional reluctant to learning, leave alone a CISO. So this is something new. And go back and look at the core technologies within your portfolio, whether it's an EDR, whether it's a SIM, whether it's an incident response or SOC. Or right now, every single security tool has some component of AI built into it. They're even building LLMs into EDR and XDR tools where you can have a conversation with the tool to do triage and to uh, deploy countermeasures or remediations. And if we can do this within the InfoSec tool, why should we block a financial tool from using exactly the same thing? So my advice would be, one, go back to your core technologies and see how they're using AI. Get comfortable with them. And if you, if you genuinely are comfortable with them and you see the benefit that they're bringing in, then you start becoming that, that champion, right? The easiest thing to say, oh, this is bad, let's block it, right? But what's going to happen is that flash forward 18 months from now, your competition is going to be ahead of you if they did not block it. So the better thing is to come up with a guidance principle and make sure that the program stays within that guiding principle. It should take data protection and some of our traditional concerns with information security, access control, integrity, and into our approach. It's an evolving technology. And as we go forward, we'll figure this out, right? But my my view, even at my organization and, and within the community, with everyone that I speak with, that if there is a champion for this technology within an organization, it needs to be the InfoSec team. We're the ones who have actually been using this for a long time. We should provide confidence to other functions within the organization that, hey, we have been using it. You should use it too but here's a safe way of doing it. I think that's an excellent perspective. And I agree that a lot of people have sort of forgotten that, that there's pieces of this that we have been using at scale. But I, I do think, though, that 
we should also be careful. You know, there used to be a rule around building use cases that I had and my team had. This goes back a long ways. But you don't collect information. You don't collect logs. You don't sort of store it. You don't mess with that until you have a defined use case, meaning you sort of start with the problem. And then that becomes a formula and visibility is part of that. So you don't spend cycles until you have a problem. So I think that that's something that we could all get better at. I found some business leaders outside of InfoSec that are so excited, they just want to sort of start experiment with it before they're clear on what they want to solve. And while experimentation is great, I, I do think that at least for a security team, to have a clearly defined problem, understand, for example, where are we struggling and where do we think this can be an accelerator and being able to uh, explain it clearly. So developing some element of a, a rubric around what does success look like when we're adopting this, right? And encouraging the business to do the same, to say, what is, what is it that we're really looking to do? Or do we want more consistency? Do we want better coverage? Do we want this sort of sleepless bot to be able to help our customers perform something? Are we looking for employee enhancement in some way? Is this an onboarding tool? Is this a customer support or service or expectation management thing? Like having that clearly defined rather than just sort of opening it, because I think you can make better decisions when you do that. And I've seen a couple organizations struggle with this. I don't know if you have any opinion on, I'm sure you do, but perspective on sort of the diligence of defining the problem before adopting a tech and that's a common problem with everything, right? I mean, we, we went on, for example, let's take cryptocurrency as a technology. We came up with this technology and we had no idea what this can actually be used for. And we spun up companies and we did all of those transactions. And even to, to this date, there isn't a defined industry or a, a society problem other than money laundering, I would say, where cryptocurrency solved for. But but the solutions and the applications are evolving and, and coming up. And now we are seeing some real examples where this technology can be used. And for one, even for, for the banking sector, they're reducing their transaction costs where, versus traditional uh, financial tra transaction costs versus what some of the cryptocurrencies can do. So there are no parallels to what's happening in the AI field within the information technology industry as a whole. Nothing has come up. Um, this fast, this mature, and growing exponentially on on daily basis, and we need to do our homework as as information security professionals, as CISOs, as as anyone within the enterprise risk domain or IT risk domain. We definitely need to do our, our homework, and there are not that many guiding principles or, or reference material that you can refer to. Internet or dot coms, which you know were a unprecedented development, but they had a industry behind them that had evolved over a period of 20, 30 years out of networking and, and client server mainframe environments. So there were a lot of rules and guidelines and principles that exist that if you wanted to refer to, you could. In this environment, it's a really cutting edge technology. The rules are not defined. And this is where I think a lot of um, information security professionals and departments are worried and, and their reaction is, let's just block it because we need that time to figure this out. What I'm saying is that if you provide that platform, if you provide that area where people can actually experiment with this and play with this, 
you are fostering an adoption of a technology, giving your organization an edge. And you're also providing the safeguards where it cannot run amok within your organization. And also giving an opportunity for the business to play with this technology and come up with those use cases, which they won't be able to unless they play with this. A hundred percent. I mean, I think getting familiar with this is absolutely important. But I think also having a register of where we want to improve is is something I recommend for a security team and, and ideally a business to have as well. You're going to have to experiment some, but a science project just for the sake of it, I think I've seen that, you know, a lot of time and money wasted on that. But I do think it's something that back to we were talking about the dot-com boom at the beginning. I think this is larger than that. and the opportunity to educate and to assist and to speed up and to add consistency and to find, to illuminate problems that we didn't know existed. I can't imagine what troubleshooting a network is going to look like in five years. Just that. Hey, we're seeing packet loss. What's the problem? I mean, hey, we have jitter on this call line. You know, what? what's the cause? Just that and being able to do it in, in human language. You're going to speak to something that's going to solve the problem. And that's the key part, right? That's the big part. Because if you if you think about it, currently the barrier to entry within any technology, especially information security, is, is for the professionals to know that language, right? But going forward, it's it's going to be the application of knowledge, not just the, the language, right? Because the language you can speak in normal spoken English and, and tell your XDR to do certain things. But what will be required is your ability to think multidimensionally and say, okay, I can connect these dots. And now in common English language, I can tell my XDR AI to do the following things for me. So speaking of being multidimensional, I want to move on to another topic. Um, You shared with me that you are in the process of writing a book. Now, I don't know a thing about this book other than that you've done it. So maybe before you even say what it is, Maybe why? Why do you think, why did you decide to start writing a book? What was the motivation behind that? As the saying goes, right, we, we tend to become the profession that we adopt, right? So it, it becomes part of you if you do it long enough. So um, disaster recovery, business continuity, crisis management, incident response, all of these things, when you spend 10 hours a day within your life, it tends to become part of you as well. So this started from a conversation with my wife when we were having a discussion about, hey, you know, should we, should we put a document together like a family will or, or a trust and stuff, the kind of stuff that you have to do as part of becoming an adult. And from that, it spun off as, let me put down a few points that in case of a crisis, here's what the kids or, or the family should take a look at. That evolved into here's my advice on what you what you should do in case I'm not there. And then I looked at it and I said, that's a good that's a good book material, right? I mean, it's not let's just upscale this and let's talk about what can anyone who wants to read this book, who's stepping into information security or is interested in information security, what can they learn and improve in their lives and their career? just by the experiences that I have gone through and also provides an opportunity to articulate some of the experiences and things and capture them 
on on a piece of paper versus memory, which, you know, as time passes, you tend to forget a lot of things. First off, let me congratulate you on the discipline to do that. Second, there are so many things that you do throughout your career and these stories. I meet with old colleagues and they remind me of things that I was a part of that I led that was my initiative that I've forgotten. And I was like, damn it, I don't remember that. Uh, and they're like, yeah, and this is a big deal and whatever. So I wish I had done this. I wish I had adopted your model and done it along the way. Imagine how many times you've had where you're like, oh man, this would make a great business case, or this would make a fun for a funny anecdote in a book, in a technical book or a business book one day, you know, gone forever, right? But I, I love the fact that you're putting this together. So who do you think the ideal reader would be when this is completed? And I know you're still working on it, but who would you want to pick up the book and benefit from it? I think ideally the audience would be the next generation stepping into the roles that we would be vacating. It's the millennials and, and the Gen Z, right? So if, if I can give them something which, not necessarily in a, in a very technical, but very lighthearted in a conversational manner about business, about information security business, if I can impart some advice to them, I think that would help them, or at least make them laugh about the stories that I experienced and, and connect with those stories and say, it's not the end of the world, it happens. These kind of things happen. Related to that, and you haven't had time to think about this, but I've, I've been on this kick lately of asking people if they have any favorite books, primarily leadership books. You know, this is the whole idea of the show is that we're sort of providing this virtual mentorship in the security space. As a podcast, we rate highest actually in higher in business and leadership than we do, I think, in anything else. I think I'm accurate when I say that. But one of the things I think we struggle with still is having great security leaders. There's a lot of people who are trying very hard, but uh, we tend to have promotions in this space a lot of times based on skill. So I love having leaders that choose to give their time like you have to ask them, what are they reading or what else do they like to look into, whether that's blogs by name or books by name or classes by name. So is there anything that you'd add uh, that you've enjoyed that you think would be uh, greatly valuable to the listener? So the three books that I would recommend that everyone should read, they would probably fall within the classics of information technology or CIS or MIS. One would be Thriving on Chaos. The other one would be Reengineering the Corporation and the Clue Train Manifesto. And the reason I share these, even though a lot of time has passed since they were written, if you read them, you will realize that every day the challenges that you face somehow or the other connect with these three fundamental thesis that have existed within IT now for almost 30 years. Is there any other news feed or, you know, maybe another resource that you enjoy or maybe even a class you've taken recently? So those three books we've certainly noted, uh, and I appreciate you sharing those. I think those are awesome as foundations. Anything else that you enjoy? So I think the new approach to some of the I'm forgetting the name of the service. I think it's Blinkist, if I'm not mistaken. That's a really good service where you can go through a lot of 
summarized versions of the books and and you can you know decide to to further invest your time and stuff the, the challenge now is there is so much information to read to digest and and it's very hard to say that any one source is now the ultimate source for for your information especially with how bard and and chat gpt are getting weaved into search engines and and stuff but hey google news right that's starts for data breaches that's where we start right hey there's a lot of um a lot of benefit one of my pastimes is trying to find anything i can whether it's a roll-up report like out of horizon or lessons learned out of an incident whether it's through a private group or anything else i'm always very keen to to try to learn about that and also see how organizations choose to manage these problems publicly, which I think many of them do so incorrectly. Uh, but that's for another day and another show. I appreciate all the time you've given us. And and I want to close on a question that's familiar to the regular listener. And that's back to you. Pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? Well, at this point in time, I think we are at a very interesting crossroads of technology with AI stepping in, with the risk and the threats around information security growing exponentially and not necessarily because of AI. Um, the new CISO, whether you're someone who's been in the business for a long time or you're someone who's stepping into this role now, you're going to face challenges that are going to be, one, unprecedented, and they're going to be new. And the ability to adjust quickly, the ability to learn, the ability to pivot, and the ability to take your team along with you are going to be extremely important, right? They've always been important, but I think now they're going to be even more important, right? Because how do you take on an adversary which no longer has the knowledge barrier because they have access to to AI coming at an organization or a small team of uh, information security professionals which are who are already inundated with day-to-day challenges with inundated with compliance and, and, and bureaucratic requirements how do you lead in that challenge how do you it, it used to be, that you are you're going up against someone who is looking for an easy target and there was a barrier to entry for them to to learn a skill to get good at it and then launch an attack against against you or your organization or your country and going forward now we're going to be faced with an environment where that barrier to knowledge that barrier to skill is going to go away so in a scenario where knowledge and technology is no longer a barrier to entry, how do you lead a team of professionals to defend the most valuable assets or resources that an organization cannot afford to to lose control of? It is certainly going to be interesting to see how we make that jump kind of together with the problems that that we're soon to face and are facing now, where you have this I refer to it, I guess, velocity is the, the simplest way I can refer to it as, but the speed at which I think bad things could happen needs to be something that we're all ready for. And I, I appreciate all the time you spent for us, the illumination that you've given us, and 
the time, especially to give back to this virtual mentorship experiment here. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.